This is an HMP Governance Lab podcast, and I'm Scott Greer, here to talk about asymmetric polarization in media and politics. In other words, a topic that in this modern age obsesses a lot of us pretty much all the time. Who's saying what on Twitter? Who's critiquing the New York Times? Why isn't Fox getting different treatment? And so forth and so forth. Well, we spend a lot of time online at every age bracket, and if you pay attention to politics or life online, you notice that there's a lot of strange things going on. There's massive misinformation being transmitted very quickly. There's social media companies which optimize their algorithms so that they promote engagement, and frequently this means promoting more and more extreme stuff. Facebook gets a lot of the flack because it's uh, quite a problematic company, but take a look at YouTube. If you look up anything to do with war, for example, you're likely to find yourself getting videos about Nazis almost immediately in its recommendations, and if you watch a few videos about Nazis, you start getting videos from Nazis. That's basic engagement enhancement. As you can imagine, it's also a recruitment tool for the uh, far right that is created by a bunch of people in Silicon Valley primarily engaged in maximizing engagement. So there's massive misinformation, there's opportunities for all forms of radicalization on the internet, there's all kinds of strange social media effects. It's kind of a weird environment in which to be a media consumer these days. And we have a couple of examples that are very prominent. One is the extent to which there's still a lot of people, mostly Republicans obviously, who believe that the 2020 election was stolen. That there was some level of massive fraud in Detroit, for example, or Atlanta, or other large cities with large black populations in the swing states that have led to the theft of the election that was rightfully won by Donald Trump. We saw their effort to prevent what they saw as a theft in particular on January 6th, uh, 2020. And at the same time, there's been an enormous amount of misinformation about every dimension of COVID-19. Do masks work? Are the vaccines actually a way to implant microchips in you so that the government can follow you? Brackets. Putting aside the mechanics of injecting a microchip with a very small needle, have these people ever heard of cell phones? If you want to be tracked, just get a phone. Close brackets. There have been people who are COVID-19 truthers entirely, say that it'll go away, no worse than a flu, the deaths are being overstated because doctors are paid more, this is endless misinformation. Now here's what I want you to take away in terms of understanding and navigating that landscape. This is what we refer to as elite-driven asymmetric polarization. I'm going to break that down, but it is elite-driven. It is a small number of people there's about 12 people who drive most anti-vaccine campaigning on the social media who are very much members of a national political elite fa playing for high stakes. It's not somebody in the basement on a Saturday afternoon getting mad about the world. It's asymmetric. The difference between conservative and liberal media strategies and media ecologies is really different and they don't work in the same way. And it's polarization, obviously. Polarization in the sense not just that liberals and conservatives frequently live in different media universities driven by different elite politics and methods, but also because a lot of the time they actually are increasingly organized in opposition to each other. Because as we know from endless studies of social psychology, the best way to promote in-group feeling is to find an out-group and demonize them. And if you don't believe me, go around to a ball game where you don't know either side, and pretty soon you'll start rooting for a team. 
One time it was a nice bucolic afternoon. I was cycling past Eastern Michigan University and I saw a baseball game going. It was nice. I thought I'd watch it for a while. They're free. And pretty soon I was turning into a rabid fan of one of the teams because that's how politics and sports are set up to make us think hard to be an impartial observer. In other words, I wanted to join an in-group and the easiest way to do that is to get mad at the out-group. So elite-driven asymmetric polarization. Let's start with elite-driven. It's very tempting to think that social media is a place where people get swept into online communities of weirdness. And you certainly see a significant amount of that in areas that don't particularly matter to our political elites. That includes recruitment for really extreme media or really extreme political organizations. But if you look at it, it doesn't seem that you're seeing grassroots social media stuff that gets out of control. And if you look close enough, you can frequently see manipulation by somebody who's more sophisticated and professional. For example, when we look at forms of misinformation, we find that people are not consistent. In one year, you might believe that Barack Obama was not born in the United States, and in another year, you might believe that the Democratic Party is embroiled in child abuse. But you'll change your beliefs. They are not consistent, and this is what we would predict, because people's beliefs aren't factually based on inquiring in the records of the Honolulu city government in the 50s. They're based on what they feel is accurate, which is a function of the people that they talk to. And we all know this. If you have a view and your friends all look askance at you when you have your view, you probably stop having your view. And sometimes it's quite explicit. If you want to get ahead in a certain world, you kind of keep an eye on what people are interested in and make it your business to know about that. I want to be an effective teacher of students at Michigan, and so I have to keep an eye on management consultancy BS that I don't find very interesting, but I need to be able to talk about it. You have to fit in. So, given that the beliefs are unstable, and they mostly represent the effects of friend and social networks, the question becomes, what drives information into these friend and social networks? And while the companies are very good at maximizing engagement, it's not particularly them. They do a lot of surveillance. And the point of surveillance, of course, is to monetize data so that they can sell you a vacuum cleaner. And one of the things you notice in everyday life is that a lot of it's just poor. Uh, there's a number of advertisers who are convinced that I live in Athens, Ohio, because I once ordered something from a major website to be delivered to some friends in Athens. And now they're trying to recruit me to all sorts of businesses that are hundreds of miles away from where I live. What that is, is because major social media companies don't actually know that much about you, and they're not that good at exploiting their data. So they buy perfectly conventional mailing lists of the things kind that have been around as long as there have been catalogs, and they try to match it. So if I buy something, they accidentally match an address, and they end up thinking that I live in Athens, Ohio, and send a lot of mail to my poor friends in Athens in my name. They're not very competent at actually doing their business, they're competent enough to destroy the ad revenues of local media. But like I said, I don't live in Ohio. Now, because it's not the companies, what it actually is, is straight up old media. It's the New York Times, it's NPR, it's Washington Post, it's Fox. It's a couple of newer media models that are still just as centralized and editorially directed as the older ones. It's Huffington Post. Yeah, to a limited extent, it's BuzzFeed. It's Breitbart. So let's break this all down. First of all, as has been made clear by a lot of research, there aren't really grassroots 
crazy ideas in politics. You don't type something on Facebook and have it go viral and change political views. At most, you get something which is amplified by powerful people, and those powerful people are, of course, what we call political elites. Instead, it comes from, depending on your left or right media ecology, a fairly consistent sample of major media outlets which drive the coverage. On the right, you have talk radio. That Rush Limbaugh pioneered it, but for example, Mark Levin has an understated role in driving it into a particularly hostile to Democrats negative affect kind of zone over the last decade. You have small competitors to Fox, people like Breitbart, One America News Network, and so forth. And then you have the 800-pound gorilla of the right, Fox News, Fox Cable News. There is no liberal equivalent to Fox. There is no conservative equivalent to Fox. There's usually no conservative competitor worthy of Fox. Never underestimate the power of Fox in dictating, driving, influencing American conservatism's direction. So on the conservative side, where do views come from? They can come from all sorts of places, but the choke point is Fox. Once they've started to get pickup and traction on Fox, they start to become a major conservative talking point. If Fox ignores them or tries it out and finds that they don't work, then the viewpoints are likely to get abandoned. And the alternatives to Fox don't generally have enough traction among conservative viewers to actually overcome that. So there's very few issues that are driven that aren't getting pushed by at least one of the major Fox News shows. This is highly asymmetric. It doesn't work that way on the liberal side. If you look at if you look at graphs, which are easy to produce, so for example, who cites who on the internet, who you know who tweets about whom, who refers to whom, what inlinks and outlooks look like, what you see on the conservative side is basically a solar system of little tiny planets orbiting around Fox News. On the liberal side, you see something that looks much more like a polycentric network. Because liberal readers are much more likely to get their news from not explicitly liberal political sources, but the things you would call the mainstream media, the ones with, that most of the time are trying very hard not to have a political and ideological agenda that's visible, even if you think they do. This is the New York Times. This is the Washington Post. This is NPR. This is CBS. This is CNN. By and large, this means that the liberal specialist political media is not that big. Daily Coast, Huffington Post, smaller and more intellectual things like Mother Jones and the Washington Monthly, they're all there in the liberal media ecosystem, but they're very much tied into this network in dialogue with the New York Times' and the NPR's. The effect this has is that while on the right, the gatekeeper is Fox News, on the left, the gatekeeper is an amorphous group of organizations which are trying to actually practice some level of objective journalism. So if you have a loopy idea on the right and Sean Hannity likes it, it's off to the races. It can become a major part of American politics fairly quickly. If you have a loopy idea on the left, and there's certainly a lot of loopy ideas, even if it gets a certain amount of push, say, on Daily Coast. The odds are pretty good that if it starts to get any traction, it will attract a reporter from the Washington Post to the New York Times, and they will squash it. And crucially, the readers will buy that. Because on the right, as you would imagine from the commercial incentives, Fox has no interest in having its content policed by the New York Times. The left is too fragmented. You can't have any actor 
that completely resists policing and adopts an oppositional stance. Now, what this means is the conservative media takes a lot of pride, and this is perfectly obvious, in an oppositional relationship with the quote-unquote mainstream media, right? So Fox takes credit in getting into fights with the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever. And this builds up their brand. And this partly explains why there's a very pronounced asymmetry. If you ask people who self-identify as Democrats or on the left what kinds of media they identify with, you get a, and trust, you get a broad range of responses. A lot of them will fill out the entire thing. If you limit it to 10, they'll give you 10 media outlets that they trust. And they're the ones I've been reciting all along, plus perhaps local newspapers and so forth. On the right, Fox dominates. If you let people list 10 media outlets that they trust, a bunch of conservative voters will actually just list Fox and stop. So Fox has got a good thing going. And like I said, why would they get into a productive dialogue of mutual correction with the New York Times? That might be intellectually desirable, but it's certainly not anything that's going to improve Fox News's position. Fox's problem is simply to make sure that it doesn't get outflanked on the right that Breitbart or One America News Network doesn't manage to take people off it on its right. So it maintains an oppositional stance vis-a-vis centrist and liberal media, and then takes care to steal the issues and perspectives of people who are further right than Fox. That's a strategy that makes a lot of sense in terms of Fox's commercial and political standing. And it produces this oppositional framework, which you've seen a lot, the kind of gut-level assumption that if the New York Times is saying it, then it must be some form of liberal propaganda. Now, is this because conservatives don't like facts or something? No. It is in many ways a historical accident. And the historical accident goes back to talk radio, a medium that is overwhelmingly conservative in the same way that comedy has a strong liberal bias for interesting reasons we can talk about some other time. The first people to really do straight-up ideological news commentary and political commentary in the United States after the repeal of what we call the Fairness Doctrine under Reagan were radio talk show hosts. Rush Limbaugh is the king of that. Well, once they were being noticed by the likes of the New York Times or the Chicago Tribune or whatever, back in the days when things like the Chicago Tribune were strong, they got fact check. And the Chicago Tribune said, no, you're wrong. And the St. Louis Post-Dispatch said, no, you're wrong. And... Rush Limbaugh and his cohort realized that what you can do is start an oppositional relationship with this media, which it's very easy to portray as being a bunch of preachy, out of touch, in bed with elites, not talking to the common people kinds of media outlets. Frequently they were. So you started to see a business model develop in which, because it's in the New York Times for a lot of Rush Limbaugh listeners, that automatically disqualified it. On the liberal side, they're still reading the New York Times. And they're reading magazines that are in touch with the New York Times if they're very politically engaged, you know, things like The Nation. Over time, this means you get the increasingly entrenched conservative business model of discrediting the mainstream media and suggesting that you should stick to good conservative media. The liberals just don't do that. But after a while, they notice that conservatives have an oppositional relationship to the mainstream media. And the mainstream media starts to look awfully good to liberals. So while it's endlessly easy to find people on the left who are attacking anything the New York Times political desk does, and you're not allowed to be a player in American politics without having strong opinions about the behavior of the New York Times political desk, 
you see a dialogue on the left with the mainstream media and relatively weak oppositional, very weak oppositional democratic sources. <clears throat> That's been entrenched under Trump, where the Fox News Trump administration nexus has been really powerful in figuring out where the United States would go. And at the same time, you started to see such an explicit oppositional stance from the likes of the Washington Post, motto, democracy dies in darkness, that a lot of liberals actually kind of dumped the more left-wing websites because they were getting more and more of what they wanted from the mainstream media. This is what conservatives mean when they grouse about the mainstream media, is that by now you have this entrenched culture on both sides. And the difficulty for the NPRs and the Wall Street Journals of the world is precisely how to maintain some kind of an objective nonpartisan stance in this increasingly polarized world where they're getting attacked by Fox for doing what they regard as their job. <clears throat> now this maps onto something, which is the extent to which in the oppositional world of conservative media, there's something which we can call the silent majority argument, which amounts to the idea that America is basically a conservative country, and not conservative in any loosey-goosey sense, conservative in the sense of agrees with Sean Hannity. And Sean Hannity's the authentic voice of the, you know, ordinary, decent Americans. And he's speaking for them. And the political puzzle that needs explaining, and this is the text of essentially every Rush Limbaugh show, for example, is how it is that the common sense of a majority of decent Americans is not represented by our political elites. And a lot of reasons are adduced for that. Well, one way to look at this is that conservatives have been having an absolutely terrible few decades. Look at the issues where they're basically losing. Uh, marriage. Necessity of. Out-of-wedlock births. Out-of-wedlock cohabitation. Interracial marriage. Uh, religious diversity. Mississippi banned yoga in schools. And they're just debating right now in, January, in uh, April 2020 eliminating the ban on yoga in schools because at the time in 1983 they regarded it as a potential threat to Christianity in a vehicle for Hindu propaganda. Um, forget about yoga in schools. There's also developments in music, the extent to which things, for example, the whole of hip-hop, that the WAP argument of 2020-2021 is absolutely incomprehensible if you think of the level of control over mainstream media discussions of music that was a couple of decades ago. Lesbian, gay, bisexual rights, huge fight, substantially lost. The gay marriage, the extent to which gay marriage has become just a normal thing in America is really striking. I said LGB rights. It's even more dramatic how quickly the United States came to accept queer and transgender rights to a substantial extent. Is the situation good for queer and transgender people? Heavens no. Is the political visibility of their interests and popular acceptance of the reality of queer and transgender people advancing by leaps and bounds, yes, it's quite a dramatic transformation. For another really dramatic transformation, one that you can smell on the streets of Ann Arbor, how about marijuana, which has gone from the reefer madness days through ineffective dare education that told me as a kid in school that I'd go nuts if I used it, through to a very high level of acceptance. With the possible exception of abortion, where public stances, if uh, depending on how you measure them, might have been getting more conservative, but that's also because increased acceptance of contraception means that people younger than the baby boomer generation are also less likely to uh, have need to seek an abortion. Otherwise, conservatives have been losing a ton of culture wars. 
and issue after issue. Those are the ones that I just kind of rattled off without any particular preparation, but you can think of lots and lots more. Everything to do with the aesthetic and the argumentation of Black Lives Matter is incomprehensible if your political orientation is from the United States in the 80s or the early 1990s or even the Clinton administration. How do you explain this? How do you explain this tremendous string of losses? Well, an argument is that there's a silent majority of Americans who hate this and are opposed to it. And when they're awakened, oh boy, it's going to be dramatic. And that is the argument that you would make if you wanted to say that the majority of Americans are on your side and voted for Trump and are opposed to gender-neutral bathrooms and are opposed to legal marijuana and this and that, and yet somehow they aren't represented. On one hand, you pick the populist stance that says that decadent elites are driving all this crazy stuff out of you know urban layers, while at the same time saying that there is a common sense American people and when they rise up and break through this layer of elites, once they drain the swamp, it's going to be dramatic change. Conservatives have been saying this since Nixon and everything I listed has changed since Nixon, right? Out of wedlock births, there's not that hard. Ask some of your older relatives to find somebody who had a date on Friday night and then on Monday morning turned up married to a different person because they discovered that she was pregnant. I'm actually referring to a couple of real stories I know from the 1960s. So compared to that, our morality is extraordinarily changed. In 1992 was the last year that a majority of Americans said that interracial marriage was immoral and should be illegal. 1992 is not that long ago. So what you say, depending on the set of issues that you care about, is that decadent, immoral elites have turned national politics into a swamp. What we need to do is to drain the swamp and let the voice of the people be heard. And the corollary of that worldview is it's very easy for Fox to persuade you, if you're a conservative, that a majority of people, the silent majority, did indeed speak. They re-elected Donald Trump in 2020, and the decadent elites stole the election. So... Come back around. That one phrase I used, which is, you know, lovely political science jargon, but it is elite driven. This is not a grassroots movement. In particular, Fox is powerful, but also all the classic media outlets that you know about are powerful. It is polarized. You have to pick a side. There's amazingly few liberal viewers of Fox, and there's amazingly few conservative readers of the NPR, for example. It is asymmetric. The conservative world revolves around Fox. The liberal world is much more dependent on mainstream media that conservatives increasingly see as liberal and liberals increasingly see as a moderate voice of reason. Is any of this healthy? No. But what I really want you to take away with is the asymmetry and above all the elite drivenness. It's awfully tempting to get mad at somebody who disagrees with you politically and is marinated in some media outlets that you don't like. But the people who are really responsible for most of these outcomes are political and media elites, many of whom are doing excellent business and building good political careers on the back of driving asymmetric polarization, even if the price is literally people dying because they didn't believe good public health advice or about COVID-19, or people dying because they tried to storm the Capitol out of a mistaken belief that the election had been stolen. On that cheerful note, this was Scott Greer. This has been an HMP Governance Lab podcast. 
If you're interested in learning more about our research, come and find us at www.governancelab.org or follow us on Twitter at HMPGovLab. Thank you.